0: Everyone needs free law CE. CE Impact is offering a live webinar with David Brushwood on April 1st at 7 p.m. Central. The topic of this webinar is patients' access to unapproved drugs. We all know that the FDA has recently indicated they plan to terminate its unapproved drug initiative. So make sure you're ready for how this termination will impact your patients and your practice. RCE is accredited for both pharmacists and pharmacy technician, and it's free. Check out the show notes and use the link to register today. Remember, April 1st, 7 p.m. Central. You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Welcome again to another episode of Game Changers Clinical Conversations. I am your host, Jeff Wall, a professor of pharmacy practice at Drake University. Welcome. Um, if you're a new listener or a longtime listener, we appreciate you uh, taking the time to listen to us. Absolutely. Uh, if you are a listener, uh, a new one or, 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 a, or a veteran one, please head over to where you get your podcast. Hit that like button. Uh, subscribe if you're not already subscribing. And uh, most important of all, uh, remember that that this uh, uh, talk is available for CE for Pharmacists and all. All you have to do to to get in on that is head over to CE Impact, our producer, CEImpact.com. Um, take a look at at uh, the package that they have for this uh, uh, set of podcasts and for a wide wide variety of other uh, CE programs that they have that really you know fit fit the budget and I think fit fit the uh, career goals of of uh, currently pharmacists. We're really hoping down the road to uh, to to open it up to other healthcare professionals as well. But definitely the, the pharmacists listening, uh, head on over and. Uh, uh, actually, get some credit for listening to me uh, talk uh, for 20 minutes a week. So, uh, today we are going to uh, take kind of a left turn. We've been we've been uh, talking for the last few weeks about uh, um, more ambulatory stuff, which is good. Uh, and you know, but I want to show some love to the to the uh, hospital pharmacist there. And and this actually has has some impact, I think, in both. But today we're going to talk about a relatively new paper that just came out in Clinical Infectious Diseases that looks at uh, uh, treatment for aspergillosis. So, before we leap into the paper, uh, you know, kind of a quick reminder. Uh, you know, again, this is, is a, a bit out of my area of expertise just because, you know, I'm, I'm more general internal medicine, but I have seen my fair share of aspergillosis in my career. And certainly those of you who are ID people or um, um, uh, transplant people or oncology people, I am sure have seen your, your fair share of asper, uh, aspergillosis. Uh, you know, it, it is a one of these very, very weirdo uh, mold infections. So it's a fungal infection and it's actually a mold uh, that is is fairly ubiquitous in 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 the environment. And uh, like so many of these uh, weirdo mold infections, if you are immunocompetent, it almost never causes a problem to you. Um, so there are some people who can develop a, a, um, allergic aspergillosis where they actually will will have kind of almost kind of a, a, a hay fever-ish type reaction to the aspergillus in the, in the atmosphere and in the environment. And we actually treat those patients with steroids. We don't actually treat them with uh, with uh, antifungals. We actually treat them with steroids because it really is just like a straight up um, uh, allergic reaction, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about actual invasive, usually invasive pulmonary aspergillosis, and unfortunately, if uh, it's fairly rare in the immunocompetent population, but unfortunately, it is uh, a, an important cause of life-threatening infection and mortality in immunocompromised patients, particularly patients who have undergone stem cell transplant. Uh, solid or, organ transplant, uh, patients with really bad leukemia, especially in that early phase of, of acute myelogenous leukemia. And then of course, anyone that we induce neutropenia with, who, you know, with chemotherapy and things along those lines. So I think certainly uh, for, for for the oncology and, and transplant people listening, I'm sure they're kind of nodding their head, I hope anyway, that that yeah, yeah but we've seen plenty of this and, and we'll infor- unfortunately see a lot of it. It is associated with significant morbidity. It's associated with actually significant mortality, even though we have pretty decent treatments for it. And we usually prophylax against it. So p- people who've had transplants will, will often be on, on prophylaxis against it. People will still get it. You will still see it. And I think for the community pharmacists, um, the, 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 the key piece here is, is that uh, these patients are not gonna be in the hospital for the weeks it takes to treat them. They're going to go home, and uh, um, uh, that, what that means, of course, is that you will be seeing prescriptions for some of the some of the oral medications we use to treat aspergillosis, and uh, and what that means is is uh, keeping a close eye for, for some of the kind of uh, unusual side effects, and I think much more importantly, the the numerous litany of drug interactions that you're going to see because the primary treatment of of uh, invasive aspergillosis, uh, uh, pulmonary aspergillosis, is going to be uh, azole antifungals, but not fluconazole. So fluconazole has uh, little activity against aspergillosis. And in fact, the uh, 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 guidelines, the 2016 guidelines from the Infectious Disease Society of America actually recommend that boriconazole is the uh, uh, first treatment of choice in patients with, with, with invasive pulmonary aspergillosis. And again, they're going to be on it for, 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 for quite some time. Uh, as far as other treatments before we get into the study, uh, I do want to touch base on a couple of the other treatments. Uh, when I first came out of school, what seems like a million years ago, because of probably was, uh, you know, at, we didn't have any of these fancy azole antifungals. So basically we used uh, amphotericin B in these patients. And of course we had these patients on on these drugs for weeks and uh, anyone you have on amphotericin B, especially the old amphotericin B deoxycholate were almost certainly going to develop acute kidney injury and mag- magnesium wasting and potassium wasting. And they got the shake and bake when when when, when they got it, they got the, 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 the rigors and the chills and the fever. I mean, there is a reason amphotericin was called Amphotericin uh, for a long, long time. Certainly, the the liposomal formulations have helped with some of that stuff, not all of it. But I think primarily the the, the renal problems, but uh, uh, fortunately, voriconazole is as or more effective against aspergillosis, and compared to amphotericin, much much safer. It does have its list of kind of weirdo side effects, but but those side effects really are are nothing compared to the side effects we used to see with amphotericin B. So voriconazole, you know, for for many years now, I think is, is has kind Kind of been, you know, the, the first-line treatment. But uh, as I pointed out, it does have some unusual side effects of and just unusual pro- properties associated. For example, uh, there's uh, the intravenous formulation of of uh, um, voriconazole is actually diluted in a cyclodextrin diluent that actually can build up in patients with a renal insufficiency. So uh, you really can't use intravenous uh, um, voriconazole in patients who's uh, who have bad has bad renal function. That's not true for the oral tablets, obviously, or the oral liquid, but the intravenous uh, is that's always been a problem um uh, so that that's an issue it does have some kind of strange side effects uh, all these all antifungals of course can cause um, um uh, liver function abnormalities and, and and we have to monitor patients who are on these i think uh, not not uncommonly but but voriconazole, in, in and of itself has some things like uh, visual disturbances they can see you know they have like different colors and 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 uh they have visual hallucinations actually that are associated with that there's some psychiatric and, uh, and other types of psychiatric uh side effects that can happen as well. Um, also, photosensitivity has been reported, um, and then uh, you know other, other long-term weirdo side effects. So while voriconazole is definitely safer than, than amphotericin B, it's still got its fair share of problems. And um, one of the things that's helped mitigate that and something the guidelines do recommend is therapeutic drug monitoring. And so uh, they, they do recommend checking trough levels in patients with voriconazole in, in the 2016 guidelines, uh, more to minimize adverse effects, primarily LFT absence. Abnormalities and visual uh, uh, abnormalities than anything else. Um, uh, the other thing I've seen a few times over the years is is pretty bad rashes uh, from from uh, vori, um, and that's always that's always problematic because you know all the azole antifungals are are, are structured very similarly to each other, so it definitely makes my ID docs kind of nervous to to switch from say voriconazole to you know another another azole antifungal because if they have a real bad reaction to that, it, you know there's a probably a a, a chance at least a, a not zero chance that they're going to have a reaction to another azole antifungal so that becomes very challenging to treat those patients. So bottom line is that you know voriconazole yeah, is 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 a, is a better drug than amphotericin B but it's a long way before you could call it a completely safe and effective medication. So that's where uh this recent study that was just published in um, uh, CID just actually a couple of weeks ago um uh, took a look at I think it's a pretty uh, in, interesting study uh looking at at uh, another azole antifungal posaconazole uh, um, for for the uh, a treatment of, of invasive pulmonary aspergillosis. Uh, posiconazole may have some advantages to voriconazole. It doesn't seem to have quite as many of the visual side effects and neurotoxicities and psychiatric side effects that have been associated with voriconazole. It still can cause LLT abnormalities, of course, because all azoles can. And because these drugs are all potent inhibitors of the cytochrome P450 system, it's not gonna abrogate the, 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 the necessity for community pharmacists to really to keep an eye uh, on patients on these medications and make sure that you know some other physician doesn't prescribe something that's going to be a, a huge, huge interaction that, that you're that you're definitely going to see. So, in this study, uh, this was a non-inferiority study, which is pretty much the standard now in infectious disease studies. It's 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 very rare anymore to see a, a, an antibiotic study where they're trying to prove that their antibiotic is better than whatever the standard of care is uh, nowadays. Uh, the, most studies they they say well we're at least as good. As the standard of care. And then we've got these other potential advantages. We're safer, uh, we're oral instead of IV. You know, we can, we can give it once a day. I mean, there's some more, you know, ephemeral advantages to it that, that might make people want to pick this. So in this case, my guess was they wanted to do the study to see if, if posiconazole would be a safer uh, yet as effective treatment for, for aspergillosis. This was a randomized international double blind, double dummy study. So I I always tip my hat to, uh, to investigators who will go through the, to go through the extra step uh, to ensure blinding of doing a double dummy study so patients would would uh, in arms would take an active medication as well as a a dummy pill or or a dummy treatment so that way you know it would be it's much hard much more difficult to determine who's on active treatment or or not Uh, that's important with with drugs for example that have uh, that that uh, come in a certain uh, formulation that that the other drug doesn't come in or has to be given a certain way that uh, the other drug can't be given in so and definitely tip my hat to the, to the investigators for doing this. Uh, and again, what they did was they looked at, at posiconazole versus voriconazole for the primary treatment of invasive aspergillosis. Uh, 91 study sites in 26 countries. So a very large study. You'd need to do that, obviously. I mean, fortunately, aspergill- aspergillosis is, is, is not common. It's not rare, but, but it, the, the percentages have gone way down since we routinely prophylax, for example, transplant patients. So, so fortunately we, we, we have seen a, Decrease in the number of invasive aspergillosis uh, uh, tre- uh, infections. So it took it. it would make sense that they, they would have to do this as an international study, uh, and it really was done throughout the world: Asia Pacific region, Europe, and North and South America. They included uh, uh, patients only 13 years and older. So you could argue that they had some pediatric patients in here as, as well. Uh, they had features consistent with proven, probable, or possible invasive aspergillosis as defined by a standardized c- uh, consensus criteria. That's always been one of the issues with aspergillosis is is really the only real way to fully prove an invasive pulmonary aspergillosis to actually get a, a chunk of tissue out of the lung and see if, if you can get aspergillosis or aspergillus from that. As you might imagine, that's that requires bronchoscopy. Uh, it is a, an invasive procedure. Some of these patients won't be able to tolerate that procedure without going on a mechanical ventilator. So uh, many times infectious disease physicians or an oncologist will have to have to use uh, other uh, tests uh, such as the, the Fungitel test or the, the galactic gas Tests that they'll use as kind of a secondary marker that suggests uh, um, aspergillosis, and that in conjunction with symptoms and conjunction with 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 imaging, usually CT scan uh, scanning results, m- pushes them to say, okay, we don't know for absolute sure this patient has uh, aspergillosis, but given all this stuff, the odds are, are are really really high that they do. So that so uh, you could argue is that a strike of the study that they didn't know for absolutely sure that every single one of these patients uh, had invasive aspergillosis, perhaps, but I also think it improves. Was the external validity of the study because that's really what happens a lot of times in these patients so um, uh, really uh the they, they didn't have they did stratify patients by their risk factors for developing aspergillosis whether they're transplant or neutropenic and stuff like that but they but they didn't exclude anybody for for any of those reasons all patients had to have a central line in um because uh requires a central line for intravenous administration unfortunately so uh keep that in mind uh, they excluded patients who had other types of aspergillosis, so had you know either uh, the, uh, some form of chronic aspergillosis, which does exist, or allergic aspergillosis. As we talked about talked about this had to be their first episode of, of aspergillosis. So uh, there are unfortunately some patients who have a recurrent or relapse. So this, this had to be primary invasive pulmonary aspergillosis. They couldn't have clinically significant liver dysfunction, which of course makes sense. They uh, define that as a child P score of C, which is it means of course severe hepatic impairment. Uh, they could not have severe renal insufficiency, so your creatinine clearances had to be above twenty mils a minute, or they couldn't be on hemodialysis. They couldn't have any other uh, uh, mold or fungal infections, which makes sense because that would that would would skew the the, uh, the treatment of those patients one, one way or another. Um, for at least ninety-six hours before randomization, they did stratify randomization by risk risk uh, stratus. So the, uh, they said, okay, you know, we're going to look into patients who are high risk for aspergillosis versus low risk, and they considered high risk patients patients who had stem cell transplants or had relapsed leukemia under, undergoing salvage chemotherapy or liver transplants, because those patients seem to be the patients at highest risk for developing an, uh, invasive aspergillosis and having the worst outcomes as well. They did, then uh, masked uh, the intravenous infusions uh, of this uh, so that people would be able to see what, what patients were getting. And uh, uh, then they, and they got either, they got two infusions. So one was the active medication and one was the placebo medication. And then the other arm got the other active medication and a placebo infusion as well. And then when these patients were transitioned to oral medications, uh, the uh, the oral posiconazole and boriconazole was administered via a double dummy system, so uh, they uh, over-encapsulated the tablets uh, uh, so so people wouldn't be able to see what they were taking, and they were standard doses that they were using for, for both medications. Um, so how the regimen went was, uh, patients were randomly assigned to receive posiconazole, uh, orally or IV, you didn't have to be on IV uh, in, in the study patients could swallow and they felt like their gut was working okay, it was reasonable to use, and they would do 300 milligrams twice daily of posiconazole on day one, and then 300 a day thereafter, or voriconazole, uh, six milligrams per kilogram IV, or 300 milligrams orally twice daily on day one, followed by four milligram per kilogram intravenously, or 200 milligrams daily, thereafter. And that's, that's pretty much the standard dosing of both those medications, they did reduce the dose of oracanazole for hepatic insufficiency. And a key piece here is they did not do uh, um, a therapeutic drug monitoring of voriconazole uh, or posiconazole, Though we have less data with the therapeutic drug monitoring and posiconazole, so, so uh, they did not mandate or require therapeutic drug monitoring of voriconazole. and actually in the study, they don't mention it at all. They don't mention if if people did do it, what they were finding or anything along those lines, so I think that is an important limitation of the study because, again, that's that's we try to do that, I think, in, in, in most at least, at least most large oncology and transplant centers. Uh, the primary endpoint was all-cause mortality so they, they, they reached for the about the hardest outcome you could do at study day 42 again remember that the treatment of, of aspergillosis is weeks not days so that this is i think a, a reasonable study outcome um, and and they just started uh, the clock on these patients on on day one of treatment regardless of the duration of study treatment uh, their secondary eff- efficacy endpoints included all cause mortality until day 84 which is good and uh, then they they looked at um, a, a wide variety of of subgroup analyses, they wanted to see, you know, gee, is there a difference in patients who have uh, stem cell transplant? Is there a difference in patients who are neutropenic, et cetera, et cetera? Is there a difference in age, et cetera, et cetera? And they also looked at just clinical response, whether the patients had had primary or, or complete response, as as defined by standardized uh, criteria. They also looked at safety, which again I think is is the key piece in this study, and and they did I think a very good job of assessing s- safety. They just didn't ask patients, hey, you have a side effect? Uh, they actually uh, did a, a item. Inventory to patients when they were seen by by the study physicians, and they uh, stratified uh, the number and type of adverse effects as well as their severity. And so there was uh, s- uh, several tiers of, of 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 severity of side effects. So for example, for hepatic dysfunction, tier one was patients who had uh, ASTs and ALTs about three times upper limit of normal. But then tier two was a higher number of that, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, uh, severe dermatologic effects and and other side effects had this tiered system. So I think. Again, uh, they did a very good job of trying to assess safety in the study. Study itself went on for about six years, um, which tells you, I think, you know, good news that, that they had a hard time finding uh, patients It took them six years through the study. Uh, they they ended up randomizing uh, 585 patients. Uh, 575 actually received one or more doses of the study drug. So 287 patients received uh, voriconazole and 288 patients received posiconazole. In their statistical analysis, that did reach uh, what they needed to do for non-inferiority. Remember that this is a non-inferiority study, so they weren't trying to show the one was better or not. But really important when you're reading non inferior or inferiority studies, you have to make sure that they uh, do a power calculation and that they do fi- get the number of patients they need in the power calculation to, to show non-inferiority. Uh, the baseline patients were balanced really well. Main age was 57, uh, 60% were female, uh, 67% were Caucasian, um, uh, and then 39% were high risk patients. So they had either, again, they were st- stem cell transplant, they were they had relapse leukemia, or they were liver transplant patients, but uh, they had a, a, a a wide uh, a variety of number of patients, um, including you know patients who just were on high dose corticosteroids, uh, patients who were on other T cell immunosuppressant drugs like cyclosporine, tacrolimus, uh, and then patients who just had new, uh, uh, neutropenia. So there was you know a good a good you know 20 to 30 percent of patients in all those categories. So uh, it, uh, I think it was a very wide representation of patients that you would likely to see who would develop uh, pulmonary aspergillosis. As far as the primary efficacy endpoint, all cause mortality again at 42 day mark. In the intention-to-treat analysis, uh, 15% of patients in the posaconazole group uh, uh, died in the first 42 days compared to 21% in the vorticonazole group. Uh, that was a treatment difference of, of 5.3%. And when they did how they did the uh, non-inferiority in the studies, they looked at the confidence interval of of the differences between the two the two uh, treatment arms, and if the upper limit of that wasn't more than 10%, uh, uh, then that was considered non-inferior. And that's a pretty standard way to do non-inferiority studies, and that was not and so actually uh, the, the high end was only 1% and, and if it was then they were ready to call it non-inferior if it was less than 10% so it did reach non-inferiority and they found that that, that posiconazole was non-inferior to voriconazole in day 42 and the same at day at 84 uh, the numbers were, were again virtually identical where um, at, 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 at uh, day 84 uh, um, 28% of patients in the uh, posiconazole group had died and compared to 31% in the voriconazole group, which again tells you the the, the mortality of the of, of this 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 unfortunate infection, um, but again that those numbers also met the criteria for non-inferiority. So from an efficacy standpoint, they seem to be similar to each other. What about safety? And here is the big difference: uh, there was statistically significant differences in several side effects compared to vori to uh, uh, posiconazole, in particular uh, uh, visual disturbances, hallucinations, um, and and um, um, Uh, uh, skin eruptions and and rashes were more common in the boriconazole arm and and actually quite a bit more common in the boriconazole arm uh, compared to the posiconazole arm. There were some of that in posi, but much, much less. Uh, However, LFT abnormalities were about the same in in both groups. So there was no difference in them. Unfortunately, they did not uh, uh, have any reports about drug interactions with these drugs, which which, again, I think is gonna be a practical issue. So kind of what I walk away from this study, and I I think this this does have the potential to, to change some practice and it'll be interesting to see if what uh, what IDSA does when they update their their aspergillosis guidelines is that you know this study shows i think that that in a pretty well done study that 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 posiconazole is at least as good as boriconazole in mortality in, in patients with uh, with uh, invasive aspergillosis and more importantly from a visual disturbances, hallucinations, and and skin eruption uh, perspective, it seems to be much safer. And so, I think that's that's going to be a, you know a, a, an important issue. I think certainly I've seen with my ID docs that that ends up being an issue over time. So, um, I, I I think that this should give uh, uh, those practitioners some level of confidence that if they need to switch to posaconazole that um, um, or they want to use posaconazole up, up front, that 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 they're going to get good efficacy and probably superior. safety safety. Now, you could argue, and I think one of the, the, the criticisms of the study is if had they done therapeutic drug monitoring of voriconazole, would they have had less side effects? They certainly could have, and so that does, uh, I think, limit, limit some of the, the safety outcomes of the study. Um, I can see why, you know, the only way I can think of they would have been able to do that is if they had had a central blinding committee who looked at voriconazole levels and then did, and then drew levels on everybody, you know, whether or not they were getting voriconazole. And I could see that probably gets that's probably gets pretty dicey from a logistic standpoint, to say nothing of a, of a of an ethic standpoint. You're sticking patients who you know aren't on voriconazole, so I'm not sure that would have been able to be done the way they had the, the study set up. But but again, it is it is a strike, um, and uh, I think again the other big strike is is something that community farms need to deal with is 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 that they didn't really talk about drug interactions at all, and That's going to be a a key issue here because uh, especially transplant patients are on a huge variety of of medications, many of which go through the cytochrome P450 system and starting these medications or adjusting some medications is going to require uh, vigilance in, in either stopping those drugs adjusting the doses of those drugs etc cetera, etc cetera. and I think especially if patients are seeing a variety of physicians who may not be aware of the patients on posiconazole or voriconazole boric- long term that that they're going to have to uh, um, um, uh, that they're going to have to uh, uh, watch out for side effects, and or, I'm sorry, watch out for drug interactions. Excuse me, that uh, they, may not, they may not be aware the patient's on them, and they start a medication that could that could get the patient into trouble. So, bottom line is is I you know it, I think this will be is an important study. I think it it does add to the the evidence we have on aspergillosis and treatment of aspergillosis and and we'll see if posicandazole ends up being something they 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 advocate for in the new guidelines. I know all these drugs are horrendously expensive. Vori does have the advantage that it's generic now. So it's a little bit less expensive and I'm not sure, I don't believe posiconazole is generic yet. So I think that that will also be another issue, of course, is costs. So all things to consider, I think, for the community pharmacists and the hospital pharmacists as we start seeing these these infections. So uh, we're gonna wrap things up in just a second, uh, but first a word from our uh, producer, CE Impact. So again, not most common thing. We're not talking hypertension or hyperlipidemia, but it's no less important for that. As as as, as I mentioned in the study, you know, when at, at day 84, a third of patients are dead uh, in in these studies. That tells you that 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 uh, a they have a pretty bad background disease to begin with, but b uh, aspergillosis is no joke, and there's a reason that that uh, uh, physicians and 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 clinicians who take care of these patients take it very very seriously and prophylax against it. I think for the pharmacist who may not do this day-to-day, what we need to know is that posiconazole seems to be at least as effective as boriconazole uh, in, in treatment of these patients and that it seems to be safer, um, but it doesn't abrogate our need to, to watch for drug interactions. And of course, I think cost issues are going to be an, a, a problem as well. So that's it for this week. Uh, we will catch you next week. Again, thanks for listening. Uh, hit that like button when you go uh, visit us at, at wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, subscribe if you don't. And again, head over to CE Impact to get some CE credit for, for listening and me talk. Thanks again. We will catch you next week. And remember, time flies. I don't know where it's going, but the most important day is today. Take care.